ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, go to thedispatch.com to find all about the, find out all about the fifth beetle. So um, um, I actually asked the uh, AI that runs the Remnant Twitter feed to ask you, dear listeners, um, what I should talk about today, a couple hours ago, because I was finishing the G file and I just didn't know how burnt out I would be. And it turns out I'm, I'm actually pretty burnt out. Um, and I have no great grand agenda to get into. Um, and so I've been going through the responses, lots of requests for things I have no expertise on, like NCAA rules and, um, um, and of course, why I haven't had Brian Riedel back on. And lots of requests to talk about dogs and whatnot. Maybe we'll get to that. Uh, Lauren Bennett wants to know who the crab people are. Maybe we can get to that. Um, but then I'd have to kill all of you. Um, so I guess uh, Michael Schaefer wants to talk about the public health, quote-unquote, experts doing a complete 180. And that's not a bad place to start because that's actually how I, that's a big chunk of what I wrote about today in the G-File. And having um, expiated much of my rage writing it, I can be a little more... Um, even keel, but I got to say, I'm disgusted. I mean, I'm, I'm legit disgusted by these people. Um, the idea that, I mean, let's put it this way. If the George Floyd protests had not occurred, if George Floyd had not been killed by a cop, um, we would still be hearing from these people that people who they disagree with going out protesting are horrible people, they're evil people. Some of them called evil people, but they were certainly irresponsible. They were taking people's lives uh, for granted. They were putting people's lives in danger. Um, they were kind of rabble-rousing idiots and all of the rest. They peed on these people from a great height. And look, I personally have, a, I think the guys bringing guns and all that kind of stuff to protests um, we're kind of making fools of themselves. I think that's all that stuff is sort of cosplay and silly and, and, and doesn't help the cause that they claim to be for. But, um, that's not the point. Most, you know, not everybody was bringing guns anyway, and certainly not everybody was bringing Confederate flags as we kept hearing. Although we, you know, I mean, you're going to have some goobers in any group, but, the, and I didn't agree with the sort of protests in the first, on the, the substance of a lot of the protests on the first place from the, you know, the people that Steve Moore were calling, you know, the new Rosa Parks because they were opposing um, social distancing rules and lockdowns during a pandemic. But if we didn't have the Floyd protests, we would have at least assumed that the experts and the epidemiologists and all these people were at least speaking in good faith. And um, I'm willing to credit that they thought they were speaking in good faith. But it turned out that once the greater pressures of um, falling in line with a new cause, sorry, there's a plane going overhead, um, you know, this sort of performative wokeness. Um, and I, I, I don't like calling it performative wokeness and all this kind of stuff because I think, I think what the protesters are protesting is legitimate. Um, you know, I, obviously I don't agree with 
the looters and the rioters and all those people. And I don't agree with everything that the Black Lives Matter people say. Um, I don't, I'm not much interested in being sort of emotionally blackmailed into agreeing to the entire agenda of all these people who are marching, marching simply because if I don't, that means I'm a racist, according to them. But at the same time, the fundamentals of this are legitimate. I mean, the, this was police brutality. At least it clearly seems, seems like it. Um, I don't really see how anyone could argue that it wasn't from what we know now, but that's why we have trials and all of that. I think people can recognize that this was not a one-off, that these kinds of things do happen. And if I were black, um, I would certainly, you know, uh, be pretty passionate about all this. And it is a legitimate thing to protest about. Um, but so I'm not just trying to be dismissive when I call it wokeness and all that kind of stuff. At the same time, there is this, you know, I, I wrote a couple of weeks ago, again, about the sort of transcendent nature of crowds, how people love to be part of crowds. And, you know, uh, I quoted this guy, I can't remember what his name is, who, um, you know, who's a, th a religious writer who talks about how we don't, you know, that pastors and clergymen are really good about talking about certain kinds of false or bad or dangerous transcendence like alcohol and drugs and gambling, these things that take you out of yourself in unhealthy ways. But he says, you know, we don't talk very much about crowds, that feeling that you get, that pounding in your ears, that tribal sense of belonging when you're in a big group and you're all in it together and, and all the rest. And um, there's so much of, of that sort of thing going on. There is this, you know, sort of classically American um, attempt to sort of spiritualize all of this. And so even though I think the underlying stuff is legitimate, um, or, you know, it's legitimate. It's legitimate to be protesting about this. When you see these videos of, you know, these hundreds of white people um, in Bethesda, um, you know, sitting there sort of spiritually expiating their sins as they denounce their white privilege and all of these kinds of things, this is no longer really an argument about public policy. It's, it's something else is going on. And so these epidemiologists who said it is dangerous, it is evil, it is wrong, it is stupid to um, go to church, to get a haircut, to open your business, to protest, all of a sudden, the larger uh, agenda or the, large, the, the, the siren song of this stuff causes them to do a complete 180. And um, as I write in the G file today, you know, there, there, there are two main arguments that, you know, this guy Frieden, who used to be the head of the CDC and some of these other public health experts and epidemiologists make, is that, first of all, racism is a public health issue. I'm open to that. I certainly think that's true in some circumstances. Um, I think it's a little more complex than that. It has to do with sort of, you know, there are, there are other factors like culture and diet and all that kind of stuff. But sure, legacy of racism and slavery and Jim Crow and, you know, income inequality and all these kind of things, they're going to have different health outcomes. Fine. And, uh, I'm perfectly willing to stipulate all of that. Um, and then the other argument is um, that, you know, Frieden makes is that public trust is hugely important. People need to have public trust in the healthcare community and their leaders and the experts and all that kind of stuff. And that's a really bad argument, right? 
because if <laughs> because what he's essentially saying to everybody who doesn't necessarily think that they want to go protest or even some people who do want to go protest, but they're also pissed off about having their business closed or not being able to go to church. The rule seems to be that protesting and, and mass gathering is wrong when it's for a cause that these yachts don't particularly care about. Um, and they don't think is particularly legitimate or it doesn't trump the public health concerns. But if you can come up with a protest thing that they not only they care about, but that they want to be seen publicly signaling how much they care about it. Well, then protesting is vitally important. And I think this is this is crazy for them to do. And it's crazy for a bunch of different reasons. You know, first of all, because um, it's going to it's going to buy incredible resentment from people. Sorry, this lady's now moving her garbage. Um. It's gonna, it invites incredible resentment from people that said, oh, this really wasn't quite as important as you said when you said we'd be killing people and all that, because if you actually believed that this kills people, um, you wouldn't be in favor of this. Um, or you do think that this will kill people, but you just think this is more important than that, which is a really weird argument for public health experts to make. And, um, if we don't get a huge spike in public health, in COVID cases because of all of this stuff, um, these guys are in serious trouble because no one will ever believe what they, what they said, what they say ever again. And if we don't get a big spike in this, which might come from the fact that the seasonality stuff is real and that summer the thing goes into kind of remission, um, and so these guys will say, well, look, you know, it, it didn't happen because of the summer stuff, but in the fall, you really got to believe us and we got to close the schools and all that kind of stuff. No one's going to listen to them. And, you know, this gets to this theme that I constantly talk about around here about people staying in their freaking lanes. Um, and, you know, I don't want public health experts to tell me what causes um, are vital and which ones aren't. Um, for excluding these rules. They're not the moral arbiters of these kinds of things. If you wanna have clear neutral rules about what is in the public interest in terms of public health, you can't have these kinds of carve outs. I mean, essential work, you know, essential workers who are doctors and uh, first responders and all of that kind of stuff, that makes sense. You can have a carve out for them, but having a carve out for people who chant the things that you agree with is nuts. And, um, and then, so, and then the, the sort of second problem with this is that there is an, you know, I would be much more open to this argument that these people are offering with a straight face. They're saying, look, um, it is worth ending systemic racism to carve out these exemptions. People are literally tweeting this kind of garbage. And, um, if I had a scintilla of confidence that that was true, that that was possible, that these marches are going to end what these people call systemic racism, then maybe I'd say, okay, you know, that would be great. You know, let's, you know, it's cheaper than reparations. It's, you know, it's, that would be awesome if, if a bunch of people marching in a bunch of cities, um, carrying signs and testifying, um, and preaching and all of this kind of stuff, um, if that was going to create the, the conditions that ended systemic racism, 
all right, okay, so we'll have a few more thousand or 10,000 or 20,000 you know, people die from COVID-19. I don't like that. I, it's a weird utilitarian calculation. But the problem with it is it's horrible. The idea that somehow these marches and protests are going to yield the kind of policy reforms or legislative initiatives that are actually going to end systemic racism is nonsense. It's just end racism. It's nonsense. That's not going to happen. And one of the reasons why we know it's not going to happen is that the very people who make a living talking about systemic racism, the very people who dedicate their careers to fighting systemic racism, aren't going to, like, all of a sudden say, once Donald Trump signs this legislative package, whatever it has in it, okay, our work is done, right? I mean, that's just not going to happen. If, it, if anything like that were going to happen, the trends over the last 50 years would be different. In the last 50 years, this country, by every, you know, halfway um, serious metric, has become wildly less racist than it used to be. There are all of these surveys about the share of people who, you know, would, would move out of their home if black people, you know, there's a share of white people who would move out of their home if black people moved in next door. It used to be a huge number of white Americans said that they would, particularly in the South. Those numbers have shrunk enormously. And even if you discount some of this because people are not going to tell pollsters the truth or all of that kind of stuff, um, you still don't get these kinds of decreases um, in, in that kind of, in, the, in the, those kinds of responses. And, you know, and also just the mere fact that even if you think they're all lying, which obviously they're not, because we would have measurements of this, of, of vast swaths of, of white people leaving communities the way they used to when they got integrated and all that kind of stuff. Um, even if these surveys are all complete lies and people are lying to pollsters and they're all just as racist as they were 50 years ago, the mere fact that they are under incredible social pressure to lie is a sign of racial progress, right? The whole idea that vocally defending racism is considered just bad, you know, for want of a better term, bad manners, uncivilized, indecent, that is a sign of racial progress. And so I'm not, I am by no means saying that race, you know, racism isn't a problem anymore or any of that kind of stuff, but things have gotten better. Things have gotten a lot better. And at the same time, the number of people who are decrying systemic racism, the number of people who are saying this country is irredeemably racist and even that it's more racist than ever and all that kind of stuff, they keep multiplying. You would think, you know, like with a lot of other things, you can, you imagine as a problem gets shrunk, the number of people who are, are professional, um, complainers, I don't want complaining is the wrong word, who are dedicate their lives and their careers to dealing with the problem. As the problem goes away, you'd think the number of jobs and voices and all that kind of stuff calling attention to the problem would shrink, but it grows because we kind of have this, basically this new class apparatus in this country that makes a living off of calling attention to these problems. And, um, you know, does anyone think that the Southern Poverty Law Center is going to close up shop if Al Sharpton gets the, uh, you know, the legislative package that he wants because of these protests? Of course not. So when the epidemiologists say, oh, it's worth, you know, violating these rules that we fought so hard to establish if we're going to end racism, 
they're idiots because that's not what's going to happen. And I don't think they actually believe that's what's going to happen. They just want to be on record having, um, you know, uh, sub, be on record subscribing to the socially acceptable um, position on this. And no one wants to say that, um, you know, it's very easy to tell the Bible thumpers they can't go to church because these people apparently don't really care about that, or at least they don't respect it very much. But, oh my gosh, tell a bunch of 20-somethings that they can't go to the Black Lives Matter march? That's outrageous. And so they all just caved on this. I shouldn't say all. For all I know, there are lots who haven't. But the people that are being written up in the Politico piece, the people that are getting hot, you know, getting dunked on on Twitter, they totally sold out to this, this movement. And it's a sign of corruption. It's a great example of how populism corrupts people, about how by giving into the passions and emotions of people, even when they're righteous passions, even when they're understandable emotions, um, causes you, can cause, you know, leaders of institutions to become corrupt. I don't mean corrupt in terms of like making money. I mean that they change their rules. They change their principles, um, because they're terrified of telling the crowd or the people or the mob or the right kinds of people, um, that they're wrong. And it's just a, it's astounding example of irresponsibility and cowardice. And it's going to end really badly. Um, Adam White actually makes a really good point that I talk about. Uh, he's a friend of mine. He's a colleague at AI. He's a great legal scholar. And he sent me and a couple of friends um, this email late, like at 1.30 in the morning the other day, because he was thinking about all this. And he makes the point, I think it's a fantastic point, that the um, that all the conservatives who are, you know, going on and on, and like I just did about, uh, you know, it's... You're, you're a Neanderthal if you want to go to church and anti-science if you want to go to church, but um, you're a racist or at least in a better of racism if you don't support and go um, to these sort of church in the street protests. Uh, you know, that conservative argument, because I, I just made it, I think is perfectly valid. But the more interesting one comes from when the Wisconsin GOP refused to... Um, move election day for its primary a couple um or was it i don't think it was a primary it was just an election day either way they refused to move the election day and i mean all day long for days on end msnbc was furious people are going to get killed even my friend charlie sykes was just going nuts about it um uh you know i i think i was probably critical of it and all of that um i i'm pretty sure steve was uh so i'm not necessarily saying it was wrong to think this was a bad idea but Adam makes the point and say, look, wait a second. So democracy, right? Specifically, the actual functioning mechanisms of democracy and election, which are uh, the government has a compelling interest in, that are orderly, they're scheduled, they're, um, uh, they are uh, essential to the functioning of our, of our system. Uh, those things are movable when there's a pandemic that the rule of the, the health professionals and the likes, um, is trumps the need for orderly elections in a democracy. Okay. All right, fine. But you then have, uh, these protests, which are not orderly. They're not scheduled. They're not a form of compelling interest of the government to be sure. Um, and the 
the response is, oh, no, no, nothing can get away of these things, right? Because these are, these are sort of cathartic. These are organic expressions of, of something greater and more important. And um, they, they point to the, the, you know, the highest virtues or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, what was it? It, was, uh, it wasn't Tillich. Keep forgetting the guy's name. The theologian who says that religion should be understand as addressing the issues of ultimate concern, and which is why religion, for you know thousands of years, was particularly Christianity was really really concerned with death and the afterlife and how to live a good life so that you had a good one and that you you went on to a better place, um, and that there is a religion of anti-racism here. That this is, you know, we have this new sort of secular political religion. People talk about environmentalism being a secular religion. I know I have. and I think there's a strong argument for it. But this, this sort of Rousseauian anti, you know, anti-racism, romantic anti-racism thing, which I'm not saying is invalid or that the goals of it are evil or wrong, um, but it, it is looking more and more religious. And it's really just sort of fascinating that um, this sort of great church-state exemption that traditional religious people <laughs> want for their religions um, makes you, marks you as kind of a buffoon. But for the religion of the streets thing, uh, it is a moral imperative. And, um, and I just find that, you know, deeply disturbing. Um, and then there's just the, you know, the larger point that I keep returning to about populism. If, now I, I constantly hear, including from some very smart friends of mine, that, you know, populism is a vital part of democracy. It brings passion and energy to electoral politics and um, it galvanizes constituencies to petition for their grievances and all of these kinds of things. Fine, fine, fine. I get all those arguments and, you know, and uh, there are reasonable versions of all of them. But these masses in the streets are a form of populism. You know, if, if, if they were all asking for free silver, we'd recognize it immediately. Um, and, and so, but here are these people, how, how is populism about healthy democracy when actual elections, actual voting, the, the proper functioning of our democracy, that can be suspended while this sort of transformative church in the street stuff can't be. Um, and there's, and this sort of gets just sort of this larger problem is that populism, because it's about passion, because it is about these sort of ethereal um, feelings of grievance and whatnot, doesn't actually like democracy that much. Because democracy requires you to argue with people that you disagree with, and it requires you to abide by the results of an election. And this sort of gets to, you know, this point that I wrote about a lot in uh, G-File on Wednesday, and I touch on again today. Um, I am just astounded by the degree to which, um, you know, I, I know people kind of glaze over when they hear about narratives and all of the rest, but... Um, what I mean by narratives here is that there is reality, right? Actual reality, actual, you know, brass tacks. How do we deliver goods and services? You know, how does government work? 
How do we elect officials? What does the law say about race, racist acts and police brutality and all of these kinds of things? And then there's this swirling mass of emotions and passions that uh, to varying degrees, you know, some actually reflect certain realities. They certainly re reflect authentic perceptions of some reality. That's all fine. But where for the most passionate people where the reality and the passion come into conflict, the passion wins. And um, everything, you know, as I put it in the Wednesday thing, you know, everything, the subtext is becoming more important than the text. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's this great scene in Barcelona. Maybe you can clarify something for me. Since I've been, you know, waiting for the fleet to show up, I've read a lot. And really? And one of the things that keeps cropping up is this about subtext. Plays, novels, songs, they all have a subtext, which I take to mean a hidden message or import of some kind. So subtext, we know. But what do you call the message or meaning that's right there on the surface, completely open and obvious? They never talk about that. What do you call what's above the subtext? The text. In America, it's just worth reminding people, we fought a civil war killed 600,000 of our own people to fight a civil war. We amended the Constitution, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments. Um, we then had a civil rights movement because that didn't take us all the way to you know, deal with everything from Jim Crow to inequities and in, in voting stuff. We have, um, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of pages of laws and regulations and court rulings that say uh, overt acts of racism and bias by the government are evil, are wrong or illegal. Forget evil, that's the wrong word. That they're illegal, right? That's, that's text. That's like the reality. Um, and in fact, the whole reason why systemic racism emerged, it's also, you know, technically it was, began in the late 80s and early 90s out of the critical legal, the legal theory movement as something called institutional racism, racism. But it's the same point. Is this idea that there are um, unseen, unacknowledged, vestigial um, legacies of, of legal racism, right? Jim Crow, slavery, that kind of thing, um, that produce unfair, unjust, disparate impacts. Um, and the whole reason why this theory was what came up, why they came up with this theory, well, there are a bunch of reasons why they came up with it, but one of the reasons why was to account for differences in outcomes when the people making the decisions in these various institutions couldn't be proven to be racist. That there was just other factors at work that yielded um, you know, uh, unequal outcomes. And systemic racism is a great, almost non-falsifiable way to keep arguing about racism. You know, there are a bunch of reasons why um, the NBA is disproportionately African-American given their population in society. It's very difficult to argue that um, that's the result of racism unless you really want to get, you know, very complicated and say, yeah, no, the NBA is not racist, but these other paths for African-American men to take are racist, so this is their only way through. That's a complicated argument. If you want to make it, be my guest. My only point is that different outcomes aren't necessarily the result of racist intent anywhere. 
And this is something that the smart systemic racism people concede. The ridiculous systemic racism people basically argue that systemic racism isn't any of that. What systemic racism is, is um, essentially a conspiracy theory that there are forces at work, you know, the, the, the globalists, the pale penis people, um, you know, the crab people, uh, the Jews, um, whoever, who are arranging society in such a way in secret so as to keep the black man down or the black people down. There's zero evidence of that, you know. Sure, there's plenty of evidence of individual racist people, and whenever they get exposed, like that Don Sterling guy, um, they become subjects of social ridicule. Um, so I don't think it's systemic racism is some sort of conspiracy thing. I think that is a truly pernicious, dangerous, you know, argument. But the smart people make what I find to be a perfectly legitimate point that there are going to be times when social and economic arrangements that have lasted a while are going to have um, disparate results. And sometimes, sometimes those results are unfair or unjust. And I mean, I, I, it's hard to come up with, you know, really clear, easy examples. But, you know, one of them is if you go to a lot of towns in America, the poor side of town happens to be the side of town where black people were forced to live because of segregation. And they have worse uh, schools, they have worse infrastructure. Uh, Flint, Michigan, you know, you had worse, you know, water and all of that kind of stuff. Um, that to me is a perfectly legitimate example of, un of unintended in, uh, uh, racial impact, disproportionate racial impact. And they're perfectly legitimate to um, find means to redress all of that. But my point is that we have all of these laws that on the books, the plain meaning of the law, this is not a racist country. It's just not, right? You can't point to, you know, laws like Jim Crow anymore. You can't point to certainly laws that enacted slavery. You can't point to the Constitution that doesn't recognize, you know, one man, one vote. You, that's all gone. What endures is sort of like this ghost image, this, you know, this passion about, the sort of hidden mysterious forces of racism out there. That's a subtext argument, right? That is, that is a, um, it's in some ways it's sort of a magical thinking kind of argument. And I don't, I don't want to say magical thinking because I think everything is illegitimate that comes out of that kind of thinking, but a lot of it is just, um, really complicated to fix. It is not, you know, the idea, and it's certainly not going to be done with the, this one set of protests. And so, this narrative that the left has about racism in America, about uh, inequality with women in America, um, you know, they have to go to the sort of poetry about it, right? I mean, Mario Cuomo, that line that we campaign in poetry and we govern in prose, um, never really much liked the line, but I get the point. And um, uh Everything, in, in order to make a lot of those kinds of arguments, they have to appeal to emotions. They have to be sometimes quite dishonest or at least not factual. They have to be kind of literary because you can't actually point on the books to laws that are, um, that are stage-sanctioned bigotry. Okay, well, that was weird. Um, I just started to move the car. 
because it was, uh, because the guy was cutting all his lawn by where I was parked. And then seconds later, uh, the heavens opened up with rain and uh, couldn't record because it was just too loud in the car. It would have been a cool sound effect, but just couldn't do it. So I had to come back home and have no idea where I was. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, something along the lines of how the, um, oh, the narrative stuff, right? So um, it's like whenever the, whenever the reality of, of a situation intrudes upon the version of reality that these protagonists want to convey, um, reality has to give way. You know, the facts have to give way to the narrative. And, um, and so it becomes very, very difficult to argue because there is no principle by which um, you can convince someone that their emotions are wrong in any systemic kind of way. Look, I mean, I, I should say, I, I know I'm frumpering about this and I'm kind of repetitive because on the one hand, I'm so disgusted by what these epidemiologists are doing and how dangerous it is um, in all sorts of different ways and how dumb it is in all sorts of different ways. And I don't want to sound like I'm just utterly dismissive of all of this protest and concerns about racism. I mean, I, I obviously have some real practical, real world disagreements with a lot of these people, but it's legit. But, you know, part of what's in my head is last night we did this dispatch live event with, um, me and Sarah and Steve and David and David really did this amazing, and I don't want to denigrate it by calling it a riff, but he just, he had this moment where we were just all, you know, in total silence listening to him and he got pretty choked up and um, he was talking about how his eyes have been open on, on race stuff because, you know, he's got this African-American daughter, they adopted her, um, and he, you know, he thinks the world of her, um, he's such a mensch about how much he, he loves all his kids, but you know, I, you, you just know how much he loves this, this girl. And he talked about how he sees things when, you know, that his daughter has to deal with that their two white kids never had to deal with. And it's not constant, but it's frequent. I think is how he put it. And um, and his, he did this wonderful explanation of how people, you know, like me and probably a lot of listeners who are white and live among non-racist white friends and family and communities where it is considered so, you know, just beyond the pale and unacceptable to speak in racist, racist terms that you can take away from this fact that racism is, is, is much more rare than it actually is. And, you know, as you put it, if, if, if only one in 10 white people are racist and you only surround yourself with people who fall into the nine out of 10, obvious racism is going to be really rare for you. But if you're a black person, if one in 10 <laughs> white people you interact with is racist, they may not be racist every time you interact with them, but it's going to be frequent. And I think it's a, you know, it's, 
it's a little simplistic in some ways, and I've talked to David about it, but it gets at a core truth, which I think is really valid. And, you know, it makes my, I have a sister-in-law, my brother's widow, you know, my brother died a few years ago, um, is African-American. She's a patient American, she, she would want me to say. And um, I know the stuff that my brother had to put up with, with having, you know, a black wife and all that. And so I, I, while I, I'm talking about all this stuff, I just want to be clear that I am not just throwing all of this stuff, you know, out there and saying they're all marching for nonsense reasons or they're, you know, they, they don't have arguments on their side. I'm just saying that they're, um, that their arguments take on a more of a emotional and literary valence in some ways than they do. Um, they're more about passion in a lot of ways. That doesn't mean the passion isn't derived from real factual lived experience, but, um, it's, it's, uh, and regardless of where you come down on all these kinds of questions, just the simple point is, is that, um, however bad this problem is, these protests aren't going to finally put an end to it. And so the idea of putting, um, of throwing away all of your credibility, um, just to be on the right side of this stuff is just insane. I mean, I just saw this, this, you know, Rob Long tweeted me this picture of, I guess it was some County in California that, um, has these new rules that says, if you are meeting in a group, uh, these new coronavirus rules, it says no groups larger than 10, unless you're protesting. And then they could be larger than a hundred. Well, Jesus, you know, if I were, you know, if I were, you know, a passionate Christian or Jew or somebody who, you know, if I were a deeply religious person who goes to serve, who takes my faith really seriously and the community of my faith and all that kind of stuff, and I saw that, I would be livid. And I just, I think it's insane. And it's just, and it's particularly infuriating coming from the people who claim to be the champions of science and that there are betters because they understand science and science is on their side the way God is on someone's side. And it's just, it's infuriating. Anyway, so that gets me to, again, I'm sorry if that was just a total non sequitur to what I was saying before, but it's been like six minutes through the miracle of um, audio recording. So anyway, um, that gets me to the second thing, which I'm not going to belabor too much. But, um, you know, the, the right these days has its own narratives that are just as, um, uh, non-reality based as a lot of the left-wing ones. We do not live in an irredeemably racist society. We also don't live in a society that's run by the globalists and all of these other people, um, and in particular, we don't live in a society where the current president of the United States is particularly competent or a particularly decent human being. Um, and the amazing thing to me, or the, I should say the infuriating thing to me, is that um, more and more, you know, the test of whether or not somebody is a good person or a legitimate person or a credible person for a lot of these people on the right is whether or not you defend or criticize Donald Trump, whether or not you think the New York Times is so bad that however that whatever it did um, justifies whatever Trump does, 
Um, and it's just all over the place. You know, I was on Andy Clavin's show this week and, um, there's this weird vibe you get from Andy. And I really like Andy that, um, let's say Drew, um, that you're crazy if you want to complain about Donald Trump when complaining about, you know, the deep state or the New York Times, um, reporting on the Mueller probe or whatever, um, is so much more important as if, you know, there's an equivalence there. And I know I talk about that a lot, so I'm not going to get deep into it, but I'm just so disgusted by what's going on with, um, Jim Mattis. Now you had this, uh, what I think was utterly repugnant and not, you know, if, the repugnant thing, you know, people are talking about that a lot. And I think it's worth pointing out this, this photo op thing. It was repugnant. It was, uh, cynical and, um, and sort of, uh, just sort of grotesque to me. Okay. And I'm, so I'll stipulate that, right. Let's just get that out of the way. But it was also just wildly incompetent. You know, if Trump wanted to do something like this, there were a hundred ways he could have done it where it didn't blow up in his face, where it didn't look as desperate as it looked. Um, but he's this guy who trusts his instincts, so he does it on the fly. He, you know, humiliates the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Attorney General um, and the Secretary of Defense. And I don't care if they claim they don't feel humiliated. Um, they're... Uh, their integrity has taken a huge hit in the eyes of a lot of people, um, a lot of people who are fans of theirs. Um, also, he could do this um, ridiculous photo op thing. And if he wanted to do it, like, he could have gotten buy-in. He could have told his staff about it. He could have worked out something. He could have talked to the church. They could have had him do something there other than just hold a Bible upside down and walk away. He didn't give a statement. He didn't read anything. He didn't offer a prayer. He just went and did this on the heels of talking about how he was going to use the military as his own personal fighting force. And um, the incompetence part of it, I think, is an important part um, because the you know it gets to this thing. You know, if, if Donald, you know, this is sort of the Ross Douthat point that I've made a bunch of times too, which is that he actually doesn't want to abuse his power in the sense of actually using his power. He's not Victor Orban. He just wants stuff to complain about. He wants to be the center of attention. He wants to own the libs and he wants to offer all of this boob bait, um, for his own side in terms of fan service. And that's what that whole thing was. And I just think it is outrageous that he did it. But the, the larger point is, so Mattis finally says something, right? It's been years, I don't know, one year, two years, I don't know, since he was the Secretary of Defense. The idea that somehow he is just this craven political player who, in the words of Donald Trump, just wants to get invited to parties, right? Because I'm sure it was very hard for him to get invited to the parties that he would want to go to um, prior to this. Um, if he was the craven political actor that these guys are claiming he was, he would have gone hammer and tongs against Trump on his book tour. He didn't do that, right? He waited until there was actually this truly offensive thing that Trump did. And he said, this is the last straw. And he said something. And so all of a sudden, you know, Dinesh and Molly and all these people, they're all, you know, they're all sort of impugning his integrity, impugning his character. Um, um, not because he 
endorses some policy they disagree with, not because um, they have long-standing disagreements with the guy, but because he criticized Donald Trump. And they don't even bother to dispute what Mattis said. They just merely change the subject to how terrible the New York Times is or how outrageous it was that the media said that they used tear gas when they only used gas that caused tears and all of this nonsense. And, you know, as I said on the Dispatch podcast the other day, you know, the real test here is like if the media had reported what happened entirely, perfectly accurately that they used pepper spray balls or whatever you call those things and smoke canisters and it was CO gas instead of CN gas and they got all the terminology exactly right. Do you think that all of a sudden the people who were outraged by the media coverage of this event would then turn their eyes towards the outrage of the actual actions that the president took? Of course not. It's just, I just get so exhausted by everybody on my team, as it were, acting as if I have to be stupid and play this dumb game. That's why I got so angry about Kaylee McEnany, is that she's there to play this game that the media is out there to destroy people. When, when the mainstream media is weaker than it has ever been in American history, it's sort of like the racism thing. You know, the New York Times' cultural clout is a fraction of a fraction of what it was even 10 years ago, never mind 50 years ago. Um, all of these major ma media news outlets have fractions of the audiences that they once had. And yet, you know, their, their, their pernicious and sinister role is worse than ever. Um, and it's, it's very, I hadn't thought about this for the G file, but you know, it's very analogous to the racism thing. You know, there are more, there are more people on the right these days who define their job as making, you know, of doing quote unquote media criticism which is sometimes real media criticism, but often it's just, here's another reason why you should hate the New York Times or hate Chuck Todd or whatever. Um, and it's not about like getting the facts. The concern is not about getting the facts right. How many of these right-wing media critics ever criticize Breitbart, right? You know, or, um, or even, well, they'll, they'll criticize Fox News for the same reason they'll criticize Mattis when the reporting is contradictory to um, the dear leader narrative. And um, I just, I find it so infuriating to be stuck in this position where, or to be cornered into this position where um, merely telling the truth about what the actual big story is or what the relevant story is, is seen as, you know, some sort of proof that I'm a liberal and all this kind of stuff. And um, I just find it just, I find it's, it's so insulting to my intelligence that it, it's, it's exasperating at times. And the last point I'll make about Mattis is, you know, look, Mattis dedicated his life to the Marine Corps and service to his country. And if he were saying great things about Donald Trump, all of the people who are crapping on him from a great height would be invoking his heroic work as a great patriot and, and warrior for this country. The only reason why they're not doing that now is because he criticized Donald Trump. And so the claim that he is being the partisan figure here, that he is the one who is a sign of the corruption of our institutions, 
gets it exactly backwards. It's the people who are claiming that he is corrupt, that he is partisan, that he is, he is sinisterly motive, motivated to do this. They're the ones who are saying that um, you can't trust these guys because he's an apparatchik of the deep state. They're the ones who are, you know, just shoving people into conspiratorial thinking about things. And, and you know, and so I didn't write about this in the G file, but this is just hugely, hugely dangerous when you're talking about the military. You know, the, we don't want to be, at least like right now, you know, <laughs> we are, you know, if the military got involved in politics, it would be for the good. I mean, it would be terrible for the country if it got to the point where they felt like they need to intervene. But, you know, it's sort of like the, the Turkish military in the 70s and 80s, they were the ones who kept the Turkish government from going Islamist. And they would have these coups, and I don't like coups, and I don't want coups, but they would go in and they would say, yeah, you know, you're not going to do this. And then they would get democracy back up and running, and then they would withdraw from power again. It's not, it's not great, but um, that's the kind of, you know, at least rhetorically, that's the kind of position that Mattis is coming from. He is not seeking political power. He is not seeking to go to freaking cocktail parties. He is committing an act of statesmanship and finally calling Trump out, which he, for statesmanlike reasons, refrained from doing for a long, long time. You know, if, if he was this sort of deep state agent, um, he wouldn't have signed up to be the Secretary of Defense. If he wanted to go to cocktail parties, he wouldn't have signed up to be the Secretary of Defense. Um, he did it because he was patriotically motivated to help his country. And the thing is, is like military civilian relations in the United States, that's the ball game. If the way people distrust Congress or distrust um, the media or distrust even, you know, the clergy and all those kinds of things, if we get those levels of distrust of the military, the cascading effects of that are so mind-bogglingly dangerous. You know, if, if all of a sudden, you know, and when there's some, there are some trends like this already that, you know, the military is only for certain kinds of people from certain cultures because everybody else, you know, people, you know, from, you know, super blue areas don't think it's honorable to be in the military. That's bad for the country. But if the people in the military start absorbing that red versus blue BS, that is just crazy, crazy dangerous. You know, if Trump on a lark just sends in, uh, you know, active duty military personnel, not National Guard, but actual, you know, military personnel without them being trained and they shoot a bunch of black people uh, or white people, but, you know, it would be worse if it was black people for political reasons. Um, that is a, that is just a, disaster in the making. And what if, you know, what if black members of the military for whatever reason, are like, oh, we don't want to be part of this. Then all of a sudden you know, you're talking about unit cohesion, order in the ranks and the, you know, the military guys I know, they've been trained their entire life. Certainly the sort of the officer corps types have been trained all of their life to understand just how friggin' important keeping this separation, keeping this distance is. 
And Trump doesn't see it. You know, part of it is because he grew up, his only real understanding of, of politics growing up was New York City politics. And for him, you know, the military, it's kind of like, you know, the you know, the police force under Giuliani, the mayor can make the police force do whatever he wants and it makes him look strong and powerful and all of that. And that's, you know, and Giuliani did a lot of that. And I was in favor of a lot of the stuff that Giuliani did. But the United States military is not that kind of political plaything. They're not trained to do this kind of stuff. They have, you know, other missions um, and bringing them into domestic politics, even talking about bringing them into domestic politics without the necessary, you know, look, I mean, I'm, you know, the Insurrection Act, when George H.W. Bush invoked it, was he was at the invitation of the governor of California. Um, it was a very different scenario. And in fact, by a lot of metrics, the riots in L.A. in, what, 92, um, were still worse than everything that we've seen so far from the George Floyd protests. More people died, more buildings were destroyed. There's more damage in more places. But more people, I think, are still were still arrested in L.A. than have been arrested in the entire country during these protests. It's just we have not come close to the level of the need to drop the 101st Airborne in for, you know, the way Tom Cotton wants to. And don't get me started on Tom Cotton thing. I think the New York Times beclowned itself in this whole thing. I don't find Cotton's argument persuasive. Um, but I think it was perfectly legitimate for the times to run that op-ed. And I think it was absolutely, it's absolutely disgusting how they're throwing Adam Rubenstein, the junior editor who handled this thing under the bus to, you know, placate again, these narrative addicts on the left. Um, I mean, I think everybody's losing their goddamn minds. It's driving me nuts, but you know, you think about all of the procedures and protocols that we have in place about say nuclear weapons. You know, two guys both have to turn their keys independently. Codes need to be verified and authenticated. There's redundancies all over the place. Everyone has to work in teams to cover each other. All Think about all of those things for just one nuclear weapon. Well, we're now talking about the entire United States military and playing games for partisan reasons for it and, 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 and impugning the character of somebody who's dedicated his life to studying and understanding the importance of these, the, this separation, simply because he, he, he offered a criticism of the president of the United States that none of his defenders dispute. It's insane. It's just insane. All right, I'm done with this. I'm done. Um, what else to talk about? So a bunch of people want to talk about dogs. Um, I, don't have my computer in front of me and I got a bunch of stuff to do. I promise I will get some more, uh, some of these questions, um, later. I did want to make one point that I didn't write about today that I think is really kind of interesting. And, and at least there's some less me griping and more substance to this. Um, what is it? Jonathan Alter wrote this book about FDR's first hundred days. And I reviewed it for the Claremont review of books. Uh, I was, I don't know, eight years ago, 10 years ago, I can't remember. And um, Alter claimed uh, to make one legit historical discovery that other historians didn't know about. I'll read you the first paragraph. In the defining moment, his recent, um, I don't remember how to pronounce this word, Pian, Pian, P-A-E-A-N. It's one of these words I know what it means, but never know how to pronounce because I never use it in a sentence. Anyway, in his recent book, 
about Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, Jonathan Alter claims to have made a genuine historical find. In 1932, members of FDR's inner circle had urged the new president to deputize the American Legion, in Alter's words, as an extra-constitutional private army. In prepared remarks to be delivered to a meeting of the American Legion and broadcast at his first radio, as his first radio address after his inauguration, FDR was to tell the assembled veterans, quote, as new commander-in-chief under the oath to which you are still bound, I reserve to myself the right to command you in any phase of the situation which now confronts us. Alters, uh, so here's the second paragraph. Alter's interpretation that this was, quote, dictator talk, an explicit power grab, is entirely plausible for any number of reasons, including FDR's determination to use the World War I era Trading with the Enemy Act as the legal justification for his derigism. It's another word I never pronounce. Um, a memo written at the Democratic Convention by future National Recovery Administration head Hugh Johnson suggesting that the entire Congress and Supreme Court be sent to an, into temporary exile while a Mussolini-style dictator set the country straight, and the widespread clamor for a man of action to run the country. Walter Littman himself urged FDR to assume dictatorial powers. Now, I don't know if how clear that was, but um, what was fascinating to me was that Alter finds this document, this speech, where FDR was going to straight up say to the American Legion, you know, a group of veterans, that they were his private army. And he ends up giving a speech where he doesn't use those exact words. And for Alter, this is proof that FDR was this huge champion of democracy, um, this great defender of democracy. But that is just a weird interpretation. The reality is, is that the notes, the early drafts, reflected very much the mindset of the FDR administration, that they were a militaristic operation. They believed in the moral equivalent of war stuff. The, the NRA under Hugh Johnson, which you have to say very carefully, otherwise it sounds like you're saying something else, um, was completely fascistic, completely militaristic. Um, the Civilian Conservation Corps, you know, kids marched in uniform. They woke up to Reveille. They went to sleep to taps. They were um, they were drilled in the forests by uh, former sergeants of the army. Um, over and over again, across the society, we militarized under FDR. And, and he thought that was a good thing. Now, I'm glad that he didn't go as far as to basically say that he had a personal army. Um, but he very much was, you know, not all in on democracy as we understand it when he was president of the United States. Now, you can make the case that in the long term, he saved democracy. There are good arguments about all of that and all the rest because there were forces at, at the margins that wanted to use the Great Depression to go even further. Um, but the guy was president for life. <laughs> um, the guy basically used all the mechanisms of World War I war socialism um, on the economy. He militarized the economy. They had vast propaganda operation to organize the economy and to organize society. People were put in jail for, you know, economic crimes that were ridiculous. And um, anyway, I just, it, all of the stuff about Trump wanting to do all this just brought all that to mind. And, in you know, one of the things I'm just being consistent about is I've wrote a whole book about how creepy I thought FDR was in 
in all of that and how the progressives were and both under Woodrow Wilson and under FDR. And I find it equally creepy when, you know, a Republican talks like this um, or a nominal Republican talks like this. And this is sort of, so one of the other things that was in the Twitter Q&A thing was talking about the differences between right and left and whether they're converging and all of that kind of stuff. And I don't really have time to get deep in the weeds on that, but I'll just give a very quick version of my standard stuff on this. There is a long tradition in among liberal historians with, you know, people like Richard Hofstetter and Arthur Schlesinger and others to um, basically describe the center as, um, I, sh I shouldn't actually include Hofstetter in this for reasons that are too complicated to get in here, but Schlesinger, sure. Um, and to some extent, um, um, well, anyway, lots of vital center sort of liberal historians and even people like Hannah Arendt commit some of these problems. And the argument goes something like this. A lot of college poli-sci professors do this in class. Well, they'll say, they'll draw a line and they'll put on one end communism and on the other end fascism and or nationalism or, you know, or socialism, whatever, you know, they'll, you know, right wing totalitarianism, left wing totalitarianism. And then they'll put a place in the center and say, this is the good place, right? This is where democracy is. This is where liberalism and progressivism and all good things are. And then under some theories of totalitarianism that you get from Arendt and others, what they do is they take the line and they bend both ends down and they make a circle. And so at the top of the circle is the center, are the good democratic liberals, the vital center liberals, the moderates, the progressives, whoever. And um, and as the, you know, in the, the two ends of the line meet at the bottom to form the circle, that's where, you know, fascism and communism or Nazism and Bolshevism or whatever, that's where they meet. And there's this very common idea out there that at the political extremes, um, uh, ideologies meet. And I understand why people say that, right? It's, it's, there's something intuitive about it that makes sense. Um, but there's a problem with that in the sense that, first of all, we very rarely talk about how um, um, opposites become the same when taken to the extreme, right? We don't say that something is so hot, it becomes cold, or that something is so tall, it becomes short. My standard joke is that we do sometimes say that something is so ugly, it's cute, in the case of like bulldogs, but you get the point. And I'm not going to get into the whole liberal fascism thing about how, you know, uh, fascism and, and, and communism were both, as, as Richard Pipes put it, heresies of, of socialism, but they were. Um, the problem with this formulation is that if you take classical liberalism, this idea of limited government, this idea of the sovereignty of the individual, of inalienable rights and all of that kind of stuff, you can't take it to an extreme that goes to either end. It's just different. And so the problem isn't necessarily of having, and it's not and in no way is it in the center between communism and fascism. It's not on the same axis. It's a different thing. But communism and fascism can certainly meet if you are just talking about uh, contests of power between two masses of essentially unprincipled populist movements. You can have right-wing populist movements that want to restore church and throne or traditional values or whatever. I mean, um, 
you know, there's in the academic literature, there's a lot of skepticism about whether Franco was even a fascist at all. He was a right-wing caudillo. He was a right-wing dictator, but he was sort of a traditionalist and a militarist and all these kinds of things. He wasn't a totalitarian in the way that Mussolini wanted to be in the way that Hitler was or that Stalin was. Um, so you can certainly have right-wing dictatorships. Um, and you can also have left-wing dictatorships. And sometimes they're just like Hugo Chavez or Fidel Castro, and sometimes they're they're more totalitarian in the sense that the entire society is um, conscripted into some ideological movement, um, the way North Korea or uh, you know China under Mao or um, Russia under Stalin were. And there, you know, I mean, it, it gets more complicated because I would be on. I, I argue that, for example, that. Stalin's Russia became distinctly nationalist and stopped being communist, but that gets us too, too into the weeds. The point is, is that this whole left-right spectrum thing, which we talked about a little bit last week, doesn't work on classical liberalism. Because when, what, do you, what, do you, what happens when you take classical liberalism to an extreme? Well, um, I don't know, really robust federalism? Um, you know, too much free speech rights? Uh, you know, uh, too many, uh, um, people allowed to, um, commit journalism or go to church. Um, you know, I mean, I guess there are some versions of extreme classical liberalism that stop to be, stop being classical liberalism and become maybe, uh, you know, hyper libertarianism or something like that. But you can't take, put, you can't take the constitution as amended put it on steroids and end up in communism or fascism. And one of the great intellectual crimes of the last 200 years is to constantly claim that, um, that sort of, that, that the sort of traditional liberal classical liberal understanding of the role of government, um, can be or is a form of totalitarianism. And I guess since I started with this little riff with FDR, I'll, I'll end with it. One of my greatest gripes about FDR, and the thing that disgusts me the, maybe the most about his, uh, at least his rhetoric, if not his entire presidency, um, and I don't know, not letting the Jews in, that was pretty bad too, but, um, and the, on oh, the internment of the Japanese. So the rhetoric, um, was in his last um, State of the Union address, which is often called his um, uh, Economic Bill of Rights or the Second Bill of Rights speech. He has this bit where he says that if we return, you know, as we're defeating na Nazism or fascism abroad, fascism, he says, if, if we return to the normalcy of the 1920s and uses the word normalcy, it was a direct reference to the great liberation of America after the hated Woodrow Wilson left office, um, where the Republicans let all the political prisoners out of jail and ended the censorship and ended the propaganda ministry and ended the rationing and let people live their lives. That was what the return to normal, that was at least the good parts of the return to normalcy. And oh yeah, the economic prosperity. He says, if we go back to the normalcy of the 1920s, we will be surrendering to the very fascism that we are fighting abroad. And there's this despicable argument, truly despicable argument that, it's, and, and what's funny about it is in a lot of ways, it's, it's so Frankfurt school Marxist. Um, even though, you know, he, he was not a, 
FDR was not a Frankfurt School Marxist, but these ideas have permanence outside of sort of the intellectual food chain. It's this idea that freedom is oppressive, that um, that classical liberalism, that individualism, that letting people live their own lives and own their own property and run their own businesses, that that is a form of tyranny. And that the way we achieve real freedom, the way like John Dewey talked about democratic socialism, liberating people, is by having the state direct them to be the best version of themselves according to the state. And um, that idea is, uh, which today goes by the label liberalism, is not liberal. You know, and I don't want to get into the whole thing about liberal, you know, they stole our words and all the rest, but in a just strict understanding of where the word liberalism comes from, that's not liberalism. The opposite of liberalism. That's not, you know, when Patrick Deneen denounces liberalism and says liberalism failed. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the stuff I'm in favor of classical liberalism. You know, he's talking about, you know, the stuff that derives from Locke and Smith and the founding fathers, this idea of freedom, the idea that our rights come from God, not from government, that we are citizens, not subjects, that the fruits of our labors belong to us, um, that we are captains of ourselves. That's the, the liberalism that Deneen takes issue with, and he's a smart guy and he's got interesting arguments, but that's not the liberalism that FDR represents. That's something else. That's, you know, you call it progressivism, call it whatever you want. Anyhow, um, I'm done. Uh, please read the G file. Please go to the dispatch.com. Um, please, uh, you know, if you like the remnant or the ruminant and you can spread the word, that would be great. If you could subscribe, um, or get other people to become paying members to the dispatch, that would be great. Um, and if you um, think I'm the one who's taking crazy pills, uh, sorry, but that's just the way I see it. And I'll see you next time. Sure.